0: Hello and welcome to the new episode of Exploring the Art Market Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Maria Baitsova wienens an IP lawyer, mediator and business writer in love with the world of art. Today, I want to talk about crimes. Somehow, when it comes to art crimes, there's frequently a flare of, let's say, glamour to it. The style, the looks, the sex appeal, if you will. We immediately remember Piers Brosnan in The Thomas Crown Affair or Sean Connery in Entrapment or lately Matt Bomber as Neil Caffrey in White Collar. Art crimes have always been a fascinating topic for Hollywood producers and insatiable public alike. This might be because stealing a painting or forging one doesn't seem to directly hurt anyone. Yet is it so? If someone steals, for example, Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. Aren't we all gonna be ripped off? And what about the destruction and looting going on, for instance, in Syria or Iraq? Those are ancient Mesopotamia and Babylon territories, you know. And they are historically extremely significant places. This is our common history, the history of our civilization. It is less about the financial loss, more about the cultural one. But let's talk about art crimes as they are, Hollywood and sex appeal aside. One more thing before I dive into the art crime universe. I will have a lot of interesting links in the notes to the podcast, so make sure to definitely check them out. Now, let's begin. Simplistically, art crime universe can be divided into the following categories. Art fraud, art theft, art vandalism, money laundering, copyright infringement, the criminal cases. Now, let's briefly go through each of these categories. First of all, art fraud. The art fraud is commonly defined as the deliberately false representation of the artist, artwork, ownership, etc. for the sake of financial gain. Art fraud comes in different forms. It can be forgery, misattribution, provenance, fraud, and so on. If someone imitates an artwork of another artist and puts that artist's name underneath, that's a forgery. Here the world-famous case of Han van Meeren immediately comes to mind as an example of a forger of Standing talent, who passed off his artworks to those of Johannes Vermeer. His forgeries were so brilliant that if he had not confessed himself, no one would have ever suspected, suspected that Vermeer had nothing to do with these pieces. I will include a link to uh, Van Meeren's story and photos of his remarkable forgeries in the notes to this episode. Forgery aside, there is another shape to the art fraud – knowing misattribution. The artwork in question might actually be authentic, without the involvement of a modern forger. However, if for instance the age or the origin of artwork is knowingly manipulated, that's a misattribution. An example of this would be trying to pass a regular Chinese vase as that of the Chinese Ming Dynasty one. Provenance fraud might be related to a forgery, when a forged artwork is given a seemingly smooth provenance trail like in the famous John Dreva case, brilliantly described in the book Provenance, how a con man and forger rewrote the history of modern art. However, Provenance might be forged also for authentic works, with some unwanted gaps in their ownership history, covering up Nazi looting, for example. Talking about examples of art fraud, the name of Knudler Gallery comes to mind. This renowned and 165-year-old New York gallery was shut down after it was found that a number of the artworks they sold, amongst others those of Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko, were in fact forgeries. The Knudel Gallery bought all the paintings in question from Glafira Rosales, who, assumedly, represented an undisclosed collector. In their defense, the gallery claimed that they were not aware and were acting in good faith. However. The lawyer of one of the plaintiffs rightly pointed out that the price the gallery paid to the seller was so low, it virtually announced its dubious nature. In other words, the gallery should have realized that if something is too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. In the notes to this episode, there is a link to the story of the rise and fall of the Knudler Gallery. In the context of art fraud, there are several other aspects to be mentioned. First of all, pastiche. If artwork is made in the style of or as a medley of various typical traits of of another artist, that is a pastiche. Pastiche celebrates another artist's work and is legal as long as the author of a pastiche does not try to pass it off as a work of the one that he or she imitates. Secondly, appropriation. This is a very shady borderline area. In essence, appropriation is the use of objects or images already created by somebody else with little or no visual transformation applied to them. More on the subject in, uh, in the sixth episode of this podcast. I will also include, include a direct link. Is appropriation fraud? In case no transformative use is proven, it might indeed be regarded as such. Otherwise, as mentioned, this is a shady area. Finally, worth mentioning are the works, for example, of Eric Dürringer, his bootlegs are unauthorized copies of artworks by more than a hundred different contemporary artists. Recently, Düringer opened a show called Christie's with a Y instead of an I-E, where he presented his bootlegs of some of the works that were sold in Christie's post-war and contemporary sale. This is also somewhat tricky in terms of copyright. They are not authorized copies, after all. Yet, they are openly acknowledged as bootlegs, without an intention of deceiving anyone. Durringer is not the only one copying the living artists, as, for example, Noah Davis likewise had an exhibition, Imitation of Wealth, in 2013, for which he created and exhibited Interalia Jeff Koons' uh, vacuum cleaner, vitrine. However, once again, both Durringer and Davis never tried to pass off their creations as authentic works by their original authors. Moving on to the second category of art crimes, art theft. Thefts theft can be roughly divided into stealing, looting and smuggling. According to the definition, art smuggling is the illegal transportation of art objects across the border. This is sadly a very frequent type of crime in connection with antiquities, when precious historically and culturally important pieces are being illegally taken out of the country of their origin. The story of one of the biggest antiquities smuggling rings in history was comprehensively described in the New Yorker article, The Idol Thief. I will include the direct link in the notes to this podcast episode. Legally speaking, smuggling is different from stealing because it involves crossing the national border, which is not obligatory in case of stealing. It is also not the same as looting, provided that looting takes place during a war or a riot, while smuggling happens also irrespective of those events. In other words, smuggling can be a result of looting, but it can also be a result of regular theft. A big case involving smuggling stolen ancient artifacts was concluded in 2004 with the conviction of its orchestrator, Giacomo Medici. The story of the largest and highly sophisticated criminal network responsible for illegally digging up smuggling and selling thousands of precious artifacts, as well as the operation which brought Medici and his network down, is described in the book The Medici Conspiracy, the illicit journey of looted antiquities from Italy's tomb raiders to the world's greatest museums. It's a book by Peter Watson and Cecilia Todeschini. I will include the title and the link in the uh, notes to this episode. Art theft is probably the best known art crime, largely due to the already mentioned interest from Hollywood. Probably the most prolific art thief in history is Stefan Breitwieser, who robbed nearly 200 museums. In the course of his career, Brad Wieser amassed an impressive collection of art worth more than 1.4 billion dollars. Which is more, he did not still try to sell, he stole to collect. The impressive and fascinating story of the guys was published in GQ. I will also include the link in the notes to this episode. Brad Wieser collected art, but art theft normally happens with a financial gain in mind. The criminals try to sell the artworks, use them as collaterals in drugs or arms deals, engage in the so-called art-napping. The third category of crimes is art vandalism. It can roughly be further divided into defacement and graffiti. Graffiti is arguably a form of artistic expression by its own standing, while defacement is a crime, but not involving art, yet against art as such. A famous case of a German serial vandal, Hans-Joachim Bowman, would be the perfect example of art vandalism. The man who suffered from a personality disorder in his prolific vandal's career damaged over 50 paintings, including works by Rubens, Dürer and Rembrandt. Certain famous artworks, like for example Mona Lisa, The Little Mermaid or Watch, have also been repeatedly damaged by different vandals. On some occasions, like, for example, the statues of King Leopold II in Belgium, vandalism was a form of a political or social protest. But frequently, like in the Bowman case, it is a result of an illness or has some other personal reasons to it. Graffiti is regarded as an act of vandalism as well, though, as mentioned, not against art, but against other people's property, by means of art. There are numerous related legal issues, but overall graffiti is an IP outcast, balancing between the property rights on one hand and the author's right on the other. I talked about the matter of graffiti in the fourth episode of this podcast. I will include the direct link in the notes to this episode. Talking about vandalism, one cannot forget Ai Weiwei, as some of his works provide yet another dimension to it, creating art by vandalizing another art. Notoriously, that of a cultural dimension. A famous performance piece by Ai Weiwei was him dropping and smashing a million-dollar Han dynasty urn into pieces. Was it an act of vandalism? Yes. An artwork by itself? Surprisingly, but also yes. The question is, where to draw the line? The fourth category of art crimes is money laundering. Money laundering is a very specific crime, which, legally speaking, calls for intent. Or, in other words, the one accused of money laundering needs to know that the money in question came from illegal activity. Money laundering has several stages. The first stage is placement, when the illegal proceeds are being placed into the financial system. Followed by the second stage, layering, when a whole bunch of additional transactions is made to move the proceeds as far as possible from the source. Ultimately, in the third stage, integration, the illegal proceeds are integrated into regular commerce. Here, art frequently comes into the spotlight. The big money laundering case involving art took place in 2018 and involved a UK art dealer, Matthew Green. Nevertheless, there were many more big and less big money laundering cases out there. Even financing of the blockbuster The Wolf of Wall Street is painted by one of money laundering schemes involving art. Links to both a story of on Matthew Green and the Wolf of Wall Street are in the notes. Price fluidity, buyer's anonymity and the general obscurity of the art market attracts criminals to explore their money laundering options in that way. Finally, the fifth category of art crimes I would like to sketch is copyright infringement. Most of the copyright infringement cases are decided in a civil process. However, willful copyright infringement with the aim of financial gain might also be considered as a criminal offence. In accordance with Article 61 of the TRIPS agreement, member nations have to provide for criminal procedures and penalties, at least in cases of willful copyright piracy on a commercial scale. Particular characteristics of an infringement to be qualified as a criminal offence vary per country. Yet, mostly, there should be either a significant damage cause or it should be an organized crime willfully committed by an organized group of people or other criminal actions should be involved, like threats, violence or coercion. Art fraud, and especially art forgery, sometimes falls under this category of crimes. To note that pure copyright criminal cases are not very frequent, but nevertheless they also do happen. To conclude, art crimes are as versatile as art itself, and in real life they have little resemblance to what the blockbuster movies depict. Above all, crimes remain crimes. Insurance might pay back the stolen financial value, but no one can repay, not even estimate, the cultural value of, say, the Vermeer's work stolen from the Gardner's museum. Same with the financial crimes involving art. It's not just, for example, about tax evasion. But on many counts, it's about terrorist financing or drug dealers dirty money. In other words, the statement I came across once that art crimes don't have a direct victim is highly dubious at best. Even if there might seem not to be one, the cultural heritage loss makes every one of us a victim. That's it from me for today. I hope you found this episode insightful. As I already said, definitely have a look at the links I included in the notes to this episode. There are some truly interesting articles in there. Thank you very much for being with me today. My name is Maria batzova Until next time on Exploring the Art Market Podcast.